0: Welcome back to the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast, an iHeartRadio and Dan Patrick podcast network production. I'm Alan Nevins. And I'm Joey Santos. And joining our conversation today, we have Hector Boreas. You may not know him by name, but I'm sure you've heard of the Netflix series Narcos Mexico. This is the spin-off from the original Narcos show. And this one delves into the murder of DEA agent Kiki
1: Camarena. Not exactly what I'd call a Kiki. A Kiki yeah, I you can't kiki. Oh, of course you don't get it. I don't You're of a certain it. age. Yes, I'm too young. <laughs> Go on, continue. Anyway,
0: this series delves into the events that surrounded his brutal and tragic murder. Hector, the guest today, was brought in to investigate his murder and find his killers, and they called this Operation Leyenda. And let me tell you, it is a really fascinating story, and it is going to blow
1: your mind. Especially because it's far from what is presented in the show, which brings us to our theme today, adaptations and misconceptions.
0: Get ready for a fascinating and truly revealing conversation with Hector. Let's grab a drink and dive in. So what are you calling this magnificent, well-fed drink? It is called El Fuego en Mi Sangre. And in my not so great Spanish, that would mean the
1: fire in my blood. There you go.
0: Yeah, no, this thing could blow your head off. It looks like.
1: Yeah. Well, if you blew your head off the night before, that's it's It's supposed to put it back together. Together. Yeah, it looks fantastic. Yeah, it's delicious. Have a sip, or have two
0: sips, and it tastes fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's like a Bloody Mary, but with with a total kick, and that beer. You're not expecting it. You know, it reminds me of a drink I learned um, when I lived in Michigan for a little while. It's called the hop, skip, and get naked, but it's because, <laughs> and I say that because it, it, actually a couple of those and that's exactly what you do. But what it has is made with vodka. Um, it sounds very strange. You, you know that that like margarita mix that you buy in the can. Yeah, you know, sort yeah, of yeah, like yeah, a lime yeah. aid almost. Right. So it's that frozen lime aid, the vodka, and then uh, a beer. Sounds really weird. But it's really delicious, and it knocks you out. It's also called a hillbilly margarita. That's more
0: appropriate for <laughs> some of the people more. we know.
1: <laughs> I don't know those people.
0: Yeah, you do. I met them through you. I'm
1: hop, skip, and get naked. Those are the people I know. <laughs> Ooh, you can hang out with go. the hillbillies all you want.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about your week. I see Eden Magazine is out, the new February issue. So you obviously got your article done.
1: Well, uh, I'm always My article is always done timely. Mm-hmm. You ask my publisher. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's always very happy with my work and my timely, um, what do they call that when you, and my t- timely submissions. Better than emissions. Yes, very much. You know, through this whole pandemic, I've written a series of articles. Each month, a new article comes out for the magazine, and it's the, my column is called The Way I See It. So I've written a lot about what we're going through with this whole pandemic situation in the last year. So many of the articles have have had that underlying thing where I try and talk about some sort of hope and some sort of light at the end of the tunnel that, that at this point is not attached to a train, you know. So that's what kind of this article is. And it's titled, uh, I, I kind of borrowed the title from the song, What the World Needs Now is Love. And so, of course, there's quotation marks there. Or vaccine. Well, that's what we're getting to. Yeah.
0: Now, are you getting the vaccine? Are you one of those that are waiting? What's your plan?
1: Week, and I'm not of age to get it, but I I was able to get an appointment. My partner and I were able to get an appointment solely because they're still doing a certain age group. But once that age group is met at this particular facility, they have the leftover. It sounds kind of shitty that I'm getting a leftover thing. Well, you're getting a leftover vaccine. Don't say that. Yeah, it has to be fresh. Burnt. (laughs) <laughs> it's burnt. <laughs> anyway, so they have some leftovers that they allow, that they open it up to a certain amount of people. And we were fortunate enough to get on that list. I'm not a leftover guy, though. That makes me a little bit nervous. Uh-huh. No, it makes viruses
0: are in there. They're all like,
1: Alan, you're gonna, as paranoid as I am no, normally, you're going to add us. that to we're it. We're all
0: crinkled and old. Anyway,
1: I'm, see how the positivity uh, is important in this world? As a matter of fact, I tried to get you on the list, but you were a little bit lazy in calling. So you missed are lazy. Slot. I
0: was driving, and I don't and drive. So you can drive. pull over. It's an
1: important thing. You could have pulled over. On the freeway? Of course. I pull over on the freeway all the time. You can <laughs> oh, get is off. is that UIC? Yes. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good <laughs> selfies. I always pull over. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when there's a lot of traffic. Uh, no, on traffic, I don't have to pull yeah, over.
0: Yeah, you're the one that's causing the traffic. Oh, he's just over there. Whatever. You should have Doing called his vaccine you appointment. Have, you missed no, I'm it by gonna five wait. minutes. I'm waiting a month or two to see it. everybody's arms called, fall off.
1: It, they were booked. They were closed. I didn't even call. I didn't bother. Oh, we'll see? I'm see, waiting. The I'm going to wait and see irresponsible recklessness
0: this vaccine, you know...
1: Oh, so I'm the guinea pig. ...kills you. Yeah. Oh, great. I think that's better, don't you? No. I do not. Uh, anyway, now, I want to bring up
0: one thing here, only because last night <sighs> I had dinner at your house. Yes, you did. And you made a pizza. And to my great surprise, it was sort of a pre-prepared pizza, but
1: you... Energized yes, because and I had worked it. all day long on the set cooking for my actors and then I got home last night and I had a couple friends over. The object of having everyone over – I mean not everyone. It was my partner, Alan, and my best friend and to have a drink and to talk about our week and to un- you know, unload a little bit.
0: Before so you tell f- them
1: what it was I, was, I just wanted to say how great it was. So what did you do to it to you – know? I opened the box. I cut it open. I cut the plastic off. <laughs>
0: Let me have some of this Put the oven
1: on to 400 degrees. Um, What I did – it's actually a new pizza by DiGiorno, and it's called the croissant crust pizza. The the crust was great. Yeah. So I just bought it, and I had it in the freezer, and I said, let me just pop this in the oven. But, of course, you have to doll stuff up. So I added, you know, extra cheese, a few different types of cheese to it, Parmesan, a little bit of Romano, fresh mozzarella – and I added fresh basil. Then I put thyme, oregano, salt, black pepper, crushed red pepper flakes, pepperoni, and then I popped it in the oven at 400 degrees for not even 20 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, and it was flaky. It rose real high, real flaky, real cr- like a croissant, but with cheese and sauce and all the yeah. good stuff, and it, it was, was really great. good. I mean, people so, at home should remember, you know,
2: even if you job, buy the no. even
0: if you buy the pizza, like do things to it. Yeah. It absolutely tasted like you had just made it. Uh, what do you what, what else is going on with your
1: week that's it I had a great week at work um, full week uh, you know production's been been really terrific I mean especially with everything that's going on so we've been pretty steady with, with our days and, and um, you know the work schedule are you on schedule oh totally oh they are oh yeah, good. On, well we did have a setback or two which brought us you know which dragged us about a, about two weeks so that just means the production will go a little bit longer which is fine you know, we'll probably go to, uh, to March rather than we were supposed to wrap it up uh, late February. So we'll probably go to mid-March, which is great for me anyway. Um, yeah, so all that part's been good. And the weeks – other than that, I've been getting home at a decent hour, like six or seven. Then I have my routine, you know, my shower, my relaxation minute, a little bit of meditation. And then I watch the, the horrible shows that I like to watch, my shit shows I call them. I watch the shit and shows. they are because I because cannot watch that it crap. Quiets my brain. Those things take me so far out of my everyday. It takes me out of my reality because I've never seen a train wreck like this before. Uh, what's that with uh, love after lockup, love during <laughs> lo- lockup, love before lockup, love after lockup? Lo- <laughs> I mean, it's it's just like, and it just doesn't end, you know. And then there's a the ninety day fiance, which has got me hooked for f- forever. Here's this one chick. She already has four kids and then she marries a convict. He gets out of jail. They get married and now she's pregnant with triplets. Tell me you're not going to watch that. I'm not. So yeah. And so this is the shit that I watch and I just sit there just mesmerized. So what about you? Well, I'm flying. I'm flying. Yeah I, know. I just in fact I just came from a flying lesson. Oh yeah, that's right. A beautiful day for it today. It's a too. beautiful
0: day. I have, but I'm very excited. I have, and I've just completed today 16 hours and I must be doing pretty well. I had t- 10 fantastic landings today in a row, so he was very happy. Wow,
1: so you just up and down circle around and Yeah, you just
0: get in a pattern and you go around because it's really about taking off, going around, dealing with the tower and the radio setting up to land, following, you know, the other planes in and then landing. So you just – it's practice about taking now, off landing. Well, let me ask off you a landing. question
1: because I, I've always been – I've always loved airplanes since I was a kid. And I, I still – even there are days where I just drive out to the airport with my binoculars and watch planes take off and land. No, but my curiosity is, so you have speed, so you don't smash into the plane in front of you, right? <laughs> I mean, you just can't just fly up there.
0: No, you would, if you did have a speed, you would smash into the plane in front of you.
1: But doesn't that would make me nervous. No,
0: because you there's certain rules, and once you learn them, you know, you have to wait till the other plane passes you going the other direction that's landing no, before see? you even start your turn. And that spaces you out. And then, of course, if you do get too close because you're going much faster than he then is, you like, die. A, like a jet might. No, you go around, fool. So I think the only thing, and today was really great on the radio. The radio is a little weird because you have to get used to that language. Yeah, right? but don't they
1: say weird things like "Victor, Victor"? Like who's Victor? Don't don't they say something <laughs> like that? Or <laughs> because they use the
0: flying alphabet, you know? Copy that. Not alpha beta, but it's alpha, Bravo,
1: Charlie. Oh,
0: you know, it goes on. So you have to, you have to learn that. all of that.
1: I would have crashed into the tower. <laughs> but yes, it's
0: like a little bit of a new language. It's not quite as complicated, but you have to get used
1: to what they're telling you. It's easier you. to l- learn Russian. No, it's not. This is quite – once you know what they're talking about, it's quite simple. By the uh, way, I'm very proud of you for that. So I know it's been something you've always wanted to do since you were young because your dad flew.
0: My dad flew.
1: Yeah. So, I don't know uh, what took me so long. Yeah. So I'm proud but, of you. And I will, I will fly with you. It's um, a blast. It 16, is so much fun. hours.
0: Right. So guess what? We got a question for you. Somebody wrote in and they have. Uh, it's actually a great question. They want to know if you have. It's a guy. He's asking, and I'm very impressed that he's actually thinking about Valentine's Day this early. Oh, a not guy that early. thinking of that? Well, I it's, mean, on it's Sunday. only a week. Yeah, that's I mean, right. not even. It's
1: a few days away.
0: Okay. Well, that's early for a guy. Usually, they're rushing yeah. to they're rushing to the store an hour before they go home. Or But he wants it. to know if you have any tips for planning a Valentine's Day appetizer spread. He, well, he wants to do something romantic, but he can't cook. Her favorite liquor is gin. He okay, wants to know so, if you have any
1: cocktail suggestions, and he's yeah, throwing yeah. up an SOS here. Okay, yes, I do. Uh, right off the top of my head, I think he should do a very sexy martini. And um, so using Hendrix is, is the gin I prefer because it's very smooth and mm-hmm. it has a little sweet, sweetness to it. So I would use definitely Hendrix. The strawberries are so old. Right, you know, the strawberries with Choc- chocolate, chocolate strawberries. Or, let me feed you strawberries in bed, my love. So just avoid that. But I would, I would garnish it with um, some raspberries, some really plump, pretty raspberries, fresh mint leaves. I always love in a cocktail. Float those. Um, so I think if you did the, the Hendrix, maybe one and a half ounces of Hendrix, uh, little lime juice, freshly squeezed. I would add champagne to it, the the rosé champagne to keep that pink thing going. Is that just Girls a splash? How much do you put in there? Yeah. I, I would just do um, about a, one and a half ounces of that as well.
0: Okay. So, so you even it out equal parts. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: And then, um, like I said, garnish it with the mint sprig, the raspberry, shake it all up with ice, pour it into a, a really beautiful glass. and um, Okay. But uh, he wants, he wants something to for, yeah eat. to eat. What, uh, what
0: could he make that's simple for a guy that can't cook?
1: Well, I mean, if you're having a romantic thing, you don't you don't want to eat. You want to nosh. You want to nibble. You know, because you really want to. You know, you want to feed the soul with conversation, with romance, and a, a food just doesn't cut it. I mean, steer clear of chili. You know, <laughs> <laughs> especially if you're hoping going to get better. I would do, I would do some better. sexy stuff. I mean, February is a great month. It's got an R in it, so that means you've got crab claws. You know, which, you know, you can do stuff like that. Which oysters, really, oysters—that's always a good thing. How old's the guy? Well, he doesn't say. Uh, well, because oysters would work really well if of a certain age. <laughs> you know, <laughs> over fifty, I would do oysters for worse, sure. But um, yeah, so I would do something like that—something very cold. You know, like a beautiful, uh, maybe a seafood tower. You know, with with uh, crab claws, with really great prawns, shrimp, maybe some lobster out of the shell.
0: And then should he just buy a little bottle of cocktail sauce?
1: No, absolutely not. No. It's the simplest thing to do for cocktail sauce is um, use a good ketchup, um, a really good horseradish, a little Worcestershire sauce, fresh lemon juice, um, tiny little bit of salt and some uh, black pepper and whisk that up together and then you've got a great um, seafood dip. And then if you don't like the ketchup base, you can also do something with um, mayonnaise and Dijon mustard. Again, a little bit of lemon juice, a little bit of Worcestershire sauce, a little bit of salt and pepper. And then that's – especially for the crab claws, that's the most delicious sauce. So I would do that. Keep it simple and romantic. And then something for a dessert, always chocolate. You know, if you get a chocolate lava cake that you share, you know, or, or something really delicious like that, or maybe a decadent uh, mousse, chocolate mousse. And then I think, you've, I think you've got it by the, by the balls. Seriously, no pun intended. It is Valentine's Day. So there you go, Mr. Listener. I hope you try it out and let me know if it worked and name your first child after me, (laughs) even if it's a girl. Call her Joey. So in a minute, we're going to bring Hector on for our conversation. But I was curious about one thing. So there's a documentary, there's a TV show, and there's a book associated with all of this. How did that come together as one
0: Well, in this case, they actually did not come together as one. The book came afterwards. Mm -hmm. Narcos was already a TV series. And then they decided to do this little spinoff called Narcos Mexico, which I think was originally going to be one of the seasons of the series. But now they've decided it's its own series. series. Yeah, on its own. And they approached Hector to be a consultant on that because it is about – this operation that he was involved in, and it has the same characters in it. But when he saw their scripts and, I guess, their storyline, he didn't agree with how they were doing it because it was a little too fictionalized for him. And he knew this guy that had been murdered. He didn't like how the story was playing out. So he decided not to cooperate with the Netflix series which is huge. It's huge. But he didn't cooperate with that. But Amazon then came along and they decided to do a four-part documentary, which he did cooperate. And he's, you know, he's quite prominent in this documentary. And that's a four-part. But they actually both came before the book. Then he came to me and had uh, said, you know, I've sort of started this memoir and I'd like to do it. But these shows are on the air in a couple months. So rather than take the traditional publishing route, which would have taken a long time to find the publisher, do the thing. You know, they can't really get a book out that quickly, major publishers. He said, I don't want to do that. Can we do it faster? And so we published the book. And it was – the. he worked with a co-writer who was an amazing writer. And uh, they delivered this fantastic book, and we published it ourselves. It's out in – you can get it as a paperback. You can get it as an ebook, And actually, we've just found out that Audible is going to turn it into an audiobook. So oh, fantastic. In about, I don't know, maybe 60 to 90 days, you'll be able to also get it on audio. Oh, great. Love that. Yeah, because they were very – when she read this book, she was very impressed. And she was like, wow, you guys published this. This is a really great book. And it's doing quite well. So in this case the book really followed but we rushed it so that it would be launched at the same time as this documentary was on the air and we were just at the end of the Narcos Mexico series I think was in its last couple episodes when the book
1: hit and that's very popular
0: and that has driven the sales of the book and Amazon was very happy with it so they pushed the book it's been it's been a fantastic sort of collaboration between these three things right. without having collaborated so that's how this particular thing happened. You know, most adaptations are a little different. Usually you would find the book, you know, a like Harry Potter or something, and it's this huge book. And then everybody rushes in and says, well, we should make a movie out of it. And then they, you know, they bring in writers and they adapt. They adapt it. And once the script gets to a place where everybody's happy, they start bringing in directors and actors. And well, they put it's it interesting it all
1: because if you read the book, watching it, it's a whole different thing unfolds. So I always suggest... Uh, if a book is great, read the book and before you see the movie.
0: Yeah, and by the way, even after the movie, it's, you know, book sales. go back. Well, book sales go up because people are now interested. And they are very different. People make the fatal mistake of, oh, you know, it's so different from the book. But you can do things in a book you can't necessarily do in a movie. Correct. You know, you're then limited then the, to your approximately two hours. And there's budgets. There's all sorts of and things that affect which a, you lose. a movie.
1: Well, who suffered from that the most was Stephen King. You know, so many of his movies were like – what, you know, the books were amazing, and then you see the movie, and you're like, okay, well, that didn't quite cut it. Yeah,
0: it's it's not always easy. And interestingly enough, if you actually look at a lot of the movies and even a lot of the TV series made today, they there is a majority
1: that is based on a literary property. Well, what do you say we uh, we have a chat with uh, Hector? Yeah, let's bring him on. So before we bring Hector on, we want to just give you a little um, a little cred for him. And um, so you can see Hector in the newly released and critically acclaimed Amazon docuseries, The Last Snark. And he also has a, a new memoir that was just released, and it's also titled The Last Snark. Hector is the former DEA
0: supervisor and special agent who has over 30 years of experience in counterterrorism and narcotics. He was awarded the prestigious U.S. Attorney's Award for Heroism. And he earned the Medal of Valor from the Federal Bar Association. He has multiple commendations from federal law enforcement's top administrators for the handling of Operation Leyenda, which is the subject we're going to talk to him about today. Stay tuned. Because of Hector's circumstances, as he really can't give away his location, we had to do this interview remotely. So bear with the audio a little bit. Okay. So, so-, so Hector, at the beginning of our podcast each week, Joey, who is a celebrity chef, is created a drink each week for the podcast. So Joey's going to explain to you what our
1: drink is for you this week. Yes, we got tired of eating, so we decided we'd do both drink and eat. So this is a cocktail in your honor. I based it on the Mechelada. So I hear that you like tequila.
2: Yes, I love tequila.
1: And you like pacifico. So rather than using Corona, because we have plenty of that this year, I use pacifico and tequila. But I use ghost tequila, which is a very spicy uh, tequila made from the ghost pepper. So Perfecto. And then I, you know, kind of dolled it up a little bit with everything. Tomato, lime, jalapeno, chorizo, camarón. I like
2: it. I like that red pepper. It's beautiful.
1: So this is in your honor. Thank you. And unfortunately, you're not with us. And I also did the rim in tajin, so instead of the salt. Wow. So when I meet you in person, I will have one ready for you.
2: Thank you. I can't wait.
1: So until then, salud.
2: Salud, hermano. Salud. we're
1: thinking of you, so cheers. Thank you. I don't think I can drink this with all this crap on it.
2: Drink around it. I bet it's spicy.
1: Yeah, it is. And the ghost tequila is killer. Oh, my God. Oh,
2: is it really, really good? I can't wait to try it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll send you a bottle. Okay, please, please do so.
1: Yeah, I'll send you a bottle and a t shirt.
2: <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> Hector came to us because first there was a series, there is a series on Netflix, Narcos Mexico. And when I first met you, Hector, you had told me that there were all of these problems with this series, that you felt that they hadn't portrayed it properly. So we've got some questions for you about that. We wanna know what was your experience with Netflix and what did they get wrong with Narcos?
2: Well, I interviewed with them about a year and a half ago, two years ago. And when I found out what their script was, and the fact that they were perpetuating a lie—that Kiki Camarena was killed because the drug lords were mad at him because of him destroying their major uh, marijuana cultivation plants in El Buffalo, which, by the way, were the—it uh, it was the largest history in the. Uh, the largest seizure, excuse me, in the history of drug enforcement, they seized over 10,000 tons. Wow. However, however, when I first took over the investigation of Kiki's murder, I talked to Charles Lugo, who had been in charge of the uh, um, Buffalo Raids. Charles Lugo was a good friend of mine. As a matter of fact, Charlie Lugo brought me on the job with DEA. And I asked him, what was Kiki Camarena's participation in the Buffalo raids. And he said, Hector, Kiki had nothing to do with the Buffalo marijuana raids and seizures. Later, upon coming on the case and talking to some witnesses, I found out that Camarena's murder had been planned even before the Buffalo raids. I said, what? I've been led to believe, as the world has been led to believe, that the reason that Camarena was killed by the drug lords was because they were mad at him for basically causing the the raids and destruction of those humongous fields. And he said, "Hector, that's not true. That's not what happened. Kiki Camarena was not there. I know. I ran the raids. So that that kind of like took me aback." So when I was speaking to, going back to Narcos at Netflix over there, they told me how they were going to, how they had written into the script how Kiki Camarena was undercover into the marijuana fields and and how he was taking a bus every day and riding back and forth. And I said, that's not true. I said, you've got it all wrong. Kiki Camarena was not involved in the Buffalo uh, raids or investigation. As a matter of fact, I said, there was no way that anybody could drive in and out of those marijuana fields. I said they had over 7,000 people there uh, as slaves. Once they recruited them and put them to work in the marijuana fields, they could not leave. And those that were caught trying to escape were murdered. The fact was that that was a of Hara DEA office where Kiki was assigned, excuse me, assigned did not participate at all in the raids. So that was one of the things that was very untrue about their script and what they were writing. And uh, I tried to tell them that uh, that, that whole scenario was, was a, a lie that was being perpetuated now by them and our government.
0: I'm going to retreat a little bit because for the edification of listeners, Kiki Camarena, I want you to explain him for a second, because his murder was a big change in this country and for the DEA, and I want you to just give a brief background on that. In
2: 1985, Kiki Camarena was picked up by DFS agents and uh, drug traffickers. DFS is a director of Federal Security, which is Mexico's CIA. They picked him up in front of the U.S. Consulate in plain daylight. They forced him into a car, and they took him to an hacienda, all, uh, an hacienda owned by a major narcopolitico. By narcopolitical I mean a, a, a government official that basically worked or was liaison between the black uh, the cartels and uh, the, the Mexican government. He was blindfolded, and he was interrogated, and his interrogation was tape-recorded. When I first came on the case, that didn't seem right to me because I had worked in Mexico and I'd seen how drug traffickers kill people. They don't take the time to pick you up, blindfold you, take you to a location, interview you, and then tape record you. So I knew from day one when I took over the Camarena murder investigation, something was wrong here. I didn't quite believe that this was a narco- kidnapping, and murder. I, I suspected highly from day one, because having worked in Mexico and all the corruption there, that there had to be Mexican government involvement.
0: Right, they wanted info. What is the number one mistake you see in Hollywood when it comes to representation of the DEA or their relations with Mexico or the drug lords in general? Where do you think it becomes very Hollywood compared to your experience of who these drug lords really are?
2: Usually when they portray the agents, they, they, they show them as, uh, you know, being up front, uh, working, kicking doors down and everything else, which, which we did do. But for the most part, the counterparts did most of the, um, basically, kicking the doors. And I will say this, usually when arrests were made, it was the counterparts that interrogated them. We were just there as observers and listeners. We do not participate in any type of torture. We don't beat up anybody. Yes, we get in shootouts, and I've killed more than one guy in Mexico in shootouts. In Narcos, they have Art Breslin, who portrays me in, in the kidnapping of the doctor, Dr. Mashain, who I kidnapped. They show me kidnapping Sikors Pino Verdín, commandante of the DFS, who I arrested, but I did not kidnap him. But they show me beating him up, or the guy playing my part in Narcos. And then when he's not cooperating, I take a knife out and cut his finger off. Now, that's police tell that he on steroids. DEA just don't do that kind of stuff.
0: Right. Because you took his thumb, not his finger.
2: <laughs> no. But anyway, <laughs> after this aired, believe yeah. it or not, I get calls from young DEA agents on the job now. And they go, boss, wow, we didn't know you guys were allowed to cut... Guys, finger stuff and stuff like that in the old days. We didn't. That's that's Hollywood. That's all glamorized stuff. That's not true. I said we never did that.
0: What is the biggest misconception you think that Americans mostly have about DEA agents?
2: Well, the misconception is that now they dress in suits. They wear a white shirts with the the ties and the Brooks Brothers suits and stuff like that. They think that presently they work the way we did in the eighties. In the 80s, we were more into undercover work. Uh, In the 80s, my hair was down to my shoulders. I had a full beard. I wore nothing but designer jeans, cowboy boots, hats. And we were undercover, and we would go undercover into the cartels. I was uh, undercover in Colombia. I was undercover in, 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 in Peru. I was undercover in Mexico. And I traveled as a Mexican national. Why? Because I speak Spanish like a native. So when I went into Colombia, I would identify myself as a Mexican national, the person that would try to score some dope. When I was in, in Mexico, okay, I was undercover, and I would pose as a drug trafficker from the United States trying to from buying dope from them there. And a lot of times I was accused like of, are you sure you're not a DEA agent? And I would tell them, look, man, I says, don't put a jacket on me. Why don't you help me get some green papers first and maybe I can get a job as a cop in the States, you know? But that, that's how, how uh, well I spoke Spanish that I could play it off as being a, a Mexican from Mexico.
0: You know, 30, it's been 30 years of this, right? Do you think anything has changed? Has the drug trade between the U.S. and Mexico changed at all with all of this work and all of this stuff going on and people getting murdered? Has anything changed?
2: Yes, it's changed for the worst. Back in the 80s, there was one major cartel, which which was the Guadalajara cartel, which was run with an iron fist by Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo. He had a set of rules. You do not interfere with the normal citizens of Mexico. You don't go out and pick up girls and rape them. You don't extort money from businessmen. And you don't dare kill somebody without my permission when it comes to the regular citizens. So he ran it very strict, there was only one cartel. Well, we went after the cartel with a vengeance because we wanted to avenge Kiki's murder. We destroyed the Guadalajara cartel. So what happens after that? A whole bunch of little cartels start springing up everywhere. And they're all being protected from different governors of different states. So what happens, they start warring with each other. And the old set of rules go out the window Now you've got the the, the drug traffickers picking up girls and raping them. You've got them extorting money from businesses. So they started really getting out of control. And consequently, there was a lot of people that that were caught in the crossfire and were killed. So back then, we had one major cartel. Look at now. We have, what, five or six cartels operating right now.
1: And then the innocent people get hurt or killed that have nothing to do with it.
2: That is exactly what's going on now. Hang tight. And we'll
1: be right back.
0: There's an interesting misconception because everybody says, oh, why can't we stop the drugs? But the only reason there are drugs is because Americans are buying the drugs. It's a supply and demand problem. If there was no demand, they would have nobody to sell
2: them to. You're right. If there was no demand, nobody would sell them the drugs. But more importantly, we have to understand this. There's corruption in Mexico. Every level of of, of government is receiving bribes from the traffickers. And on our side, the biggest cartel in the 80s and 90s was our own CIA. Our CIA is also corrupt. And they become partners with these criminal elements to what? Support their black operations, to engage themselves in unauthorized war like we did in Nicaragua and wars, Gentlemen, don't cost millions; they cost billions and trillions of dollars. So they became partners with the cartels in Mexico. We actually, back then, with the Guadalajara cartel, to fund an unauthorized war in Nicaragua. So when we have two governments, not one, involved in drug trafficking and supporting drug uh, drug lords and all of this. How is it ever going to end? Well, they're not really fighting anything. Exactly. They're, and I've said it. There, there was no war on drugs. They're facilitating it. Yeah. Exactly. The CIA inundated our country in the 80s and 90s. They created generations of drug zombies. They were behind fueling the drug violence in our inner cities when the blood and the cribs remember, were fighting and killing each other. All that violence. Sure. Who was providing them with all this crack cocaine? our own government and until we clean up corruption in this government okay we are not going to solve the drug problem the human trafficking problem or any kind of problem and i've said it many times the u.s government can teach the mexicans lessons on corruption we're corrupt over here too i hate to say it guys that's really sad yeah
0: i mean look at we've got lots of senators countrywide that are taking lots of money we've got i think three at the moment under investigation
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, well, we all know there's a lot of black operations at the CIA that Congress doesn't even follow. The money's appropriated, they have it, and they don't know what they're spending it
2: on. You know, the black operations, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because I was involved in black operations with the CIA, for the CIA, and for the DEA. And I remember when I was ordered to kidnap Dr. Mashine, the doctor that I kidnapped in Mexico. Right after I kidnapped him and and he appeared before a U.S. magistrate, it was announced all over the world that a rogue renegade agent by the name of Hector Barreiras, had kidnapped this doctor. At the time that this came out in the news, Vice President Dan Quayle was in Mexico meeting with the president of uh, Mexico, Carlos Salinas. When Carlos Salinas found out about me kidnapping the doctor, he became very upset with Vice President Dan Quayle and said, why did you guys do this? Why did you order this? And he said, I don't know nothing about this. And that he was online. lying. The, the president and even the vice president didn't even know we had carried this kidnapping out. A lot of these black operations, that's what they call them black operations, because not even some, some, our people in the, in the government know what we're doing half the time.
0: Uh, brings up an interesting thing. Do you think that anything can be done about the government of Mexico at this point?
2: The Mexican government, to begin with, wanted to clean it up. They would ask assistance from us. We, the DEA, or my former agency, I'm not there anymore, just indicted and arrested a a former minister of defense, a top general, for receiving bribes. Okay. they They protested with the U.S. government, and somehow, I don't know, convinced Attorney General William Barr to take away the charges from this corrupt general and they send him back to Mexico, okay? Because of that, last week the President of Mexico announced that he's thinking about kicking the DEA out of Mexico, and if he's going to keep him there, he's going to restrict their investigative activities to where any information that's gleaned on any corrupt government official or any drug lord has, has to be cleared by them, the Mexican government, who is totally corrupt. Now, how is DEA going to go and tell them, by the way, we're looking to arrest your minister of defense or your secretary of government or whatever for receiving bribes? They're going to link that information to them right away. Why? Because they're all receiving monies from the drug cartels to include the current president. Of
0: course, it's always about the money, isn't it?
2: It's always about the money, guys. It's always about the money, right.
0: Yeah. I mean, listen, we go into Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq with a major war when we have a country literally right next door to us that's a bigger problem than people think. And the people are fantastic. Yeah. So and that really brings me to, I want to know a little bit about your background. Of course, I've read it, but and I think it's fascinating because you actually came out of, is it proper to call it the barrio of Tucson
2: yeah, I grew up in the barrio, I became um, a policeman and and I was of course before that I was in the service, and when I got out of service, I was twenty one years old and i didn't know what to do. I had never fired a gun in my life i never my dad never took me hunting we, my dad was a break later. I mean he worked every day we didn't I never even seen a gun till I went into the u s army so when I came out of the U.S. Army, they were the police departments were trying to hire people with ex-military experience. So I went and applied, and I got a job, and I got a job with the South Tucson Police Department. I hadn't finished my degree yet; I had two years of college, and uh, they told me that I could go ahead and continue to get my my degree at the University of Arizona. But they made me a very young detective. So when I was like. 22 years old, I was already a homicide detective in the little department, which was great because I got a lot of experience working there. Later, I went to work for the Arizona Highway Patrol, and then I got my degree and I joined the, I tried to join the FBI, but they weren't hiring at the time. But the BNDD, it was not even called the DEA back in 1973, the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous uh, Drugs. We call it the Bureau of Neurotics and Dangerous Drugs. drunks (laughs) (laughs) drunks <laughs> <laughs> for, for the B for the BNDD. But anyway, I joined the BNDD later. It became the DEA. And right after I came out, of course, because I spoke Spanish and everything else, I wasn't uh, back in my office in Douglas, Arizona, where I was assigned a month when they said, you're going to Colombia, They tell me when you get over there, I'll get a cab to this address and you're going to say these court words. Okay. Because there's no DEA guys. Colombian F-2 troops are going to receive you there, so don't forget your c- password or code word. Yeah, yeah, no no problem, you know, I'm, I, I'm 26 years old, you know, I'm ready to go. So I fly into Medellin, and of course, I get a cab there at the airport, and I said, take me to this Carrera, which I didn't know what Carrera was back then. It's it's, it's a block in Medellin, and uh, the guy says, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm from Mexico. He said, you're here to buy drugs, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> guy, the taxi cab driver. I bought it the taxi cab driver like a month after I got in there. So he takes me over there. And uh, so I knock on the door of this apartment where I'm supposed to meet the F2 Colombian. And guess what, folks? I forgot the cord word. <laughs> so <laughs> so I'm top banging on the door. Next day I know they, they grab me by the hair and they throw me on the ground. And I said, I'm the DEA guy. He says, where's the the code? And I said, I I forgot it. I forgot it. It's just my badge in my pocket, back pocket. (laughs) So anyway, I was introduced for the first time to the Colombian F2Hs down there. And uh, so I was in and out of the country, Colombia, Mexico, like I said, in Central and South America, even though I was assigned to the States. Later, I was assigned uh, to Mexico, and I ran the Sinaloa, the Mazatlán-Sinaloa DEA office.
1: What, what, what was it about you writing the book, telling your story in a book? How was that experience for you?
2: You know, guys, I carried this, this, this thing like, like a saber in my heart, like a, you know, um, that I knew the truth. And I always wanted to tell the truth about who really was involved in Kiki's murder. And I always wanted to educate the American public in the fact that our CIA had inundated our country with, with, with drugs, But when I was going to retire and I was going to tell the world what was really going on, I was threatened. And I was reminded, Hector, remember, there's a warrant for your arrest for kidnapping the doctor. And you don't want to piss off our government because you might end up down there. And you know, Hector, in Mexico, you wouldn't last three days in a Mexican prison. You would get killed. So go, enjoy your retirement. And keep your mouth and head down. And here you are talking about it. Because people ask themselves, why didn't you say this a long time ago? This happened a long Well, I couldn't because I had a warrant for kidnapping and violating Mexican sovereignty. So I was afraid to say anything while that warrant was, um, you know, could be, could be enforced in Mexico. After, which is what happened in 2013, I was informed that my warrant in Mexico had expired. Then I thought, okay, now's my chance to tell the world about what really happened to Enrique Camarena, Kiki Camarena, and let the world know how our CIA has inundated our country with drugs.
0: Well, I'm going to plug the book only because it's doing really well. It was number one on Amazon the first week it came out, and people have left reviews. that They love it, love it, love it. So I recommend it to anybody who has any interest. It's really well written. And we just want to thank you for coming. Yeah, on. thank
1: you, and congratulations, and thank you for telling the story. And this is to you.
2: Thank you. Yes, I've half my drink and we'll is We'll share gone. one. <laughs> All the best. Okay. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Hector.
0: Well, he is an interesting guy. Very. That
1: was a really interesting interview. Well, so if you've enjoyed our first few episodes, we ask you please to rate, review, subscribe. And you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. We very much share appreciate it. And on share. the Facebooks. Share, share those links.
0: Follow us and share. No, not sh- don't follow share.
1: Just follow, follow us, us and share. And then tell our share link. to follow us. Too. And tell share follow us. <laughs> And don't forget to follow us on social media. Yeah. But we're going to be posting recipes, and we're going to be posting photos, and we're going to be posting links just for you. And continue to send in your questions, because that was a really good one today.
0: Yeah, I love that the guy's thinking about Valentine's Day. And they can be about the food. They can be about books, Hollywood, whatever you got. Throw it at us. We'll take it. Literally anything. And send us a message on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Or, of course, you can always email your question to contact at twoguysfromhollywood.com. We will talk at you soon. Two Guys from Hollywood is hosted, created, and produced by Alan Evans and Joey Santos. Produced by Lauren Boone. Editing and post-production by Nathan Moody. Music by Luca. Executive produced by Dan Patrick. It is also executive produced by Paul Anderson and Nick Panella for Workhouse Media. This podcast is a production of Renaissance Literary and Talent and Dan Patrick Productions in association with Workhouse Media. Two Guys from Hollywood is a production of iHeartRadio and the Dan Patrick Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.